Hello and welcome to our August edition of the Cinetopia radio show and this is our Edinburgh International Film Festival special. So we're here on a Tuesday, the film festival's begun. I'm Amanda, this is, um, I'm the founder of Cinetopia and I'm here with some regulars as um, I get back again for, um, who are taking in the festival in intensity, back with Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, our co-producer? Good, good. Um, still s squeezing in a bit of cinema around uh, childcare, which is getting easier, but we're getting there. Um, but the festival is here. It's a lot of interesting stuff on. Um, there's a few things I saw at other festivals which have come to Edinburgh and I think are really worth people checking out. So we'll talk about a few of them today. But yeah, it's, it's a good lineup. There's a lot of good films there. Um, and I think the ones we've got today are uh, pretty good. And I think we've all got recommendations for some other ones as well. Yep, and so I'm also back with Clara. Clara, how's it going? Good. Uh, I'm tender from enjoying the fringe too much, uh, but yeah, just getting in and about it. So yeah, yeah, I am. it's a it's a really busy season. It feels like intense because everyone's around. Back with Isabel Salomon. Isabel, how are you doing? I'm very well. Um, slightly exhausted from all the festival shenanigans, but aside from that, loving like the buzz of the city and also all the films that we've got ahead of us today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's just uh, dive right into what we will be reviewing and then we'll talk a little bit about the festival as a whole. Um, we'll be reviewing the film um, After Sun, which was the gala premiere directed by Charlotte Wells, a Scottish director. And we'll also be reviewing the film Nude Tuesday by Armageddon Ballantin. That is the Midway Gala, um, uh, which will, I think, be happening the evening that this is on record and on EHFM. So uh, you can check that out um, as well. And then we'll also be reviewing official competition as a group, um, which is directed by Gaston Duprat and Mariana Cohn, Argentine directors. Um, and so that is that that will be the three that we kind of pulled together, but we'll also be talking about a whole bunch of other films we've seen, we want to see. This is kind of a two-parter for us, ideally. So we'll hopefully be coming back with some more interviews as a second part for our Edinburgh International Film Festival, because it's our hometown film festival and we love to be part of it. And it's really exciting to see um, what's on offer. But I'd like to start with, you know, this is a big, this is big for the festival because it's changed its place. Uh, a long time ago, it used to be in August around with the Fringe and the Edinburgh International Festival and um, took a real, you know, took it back to June. Then we had the pandemic and, and whatnot. And now we're back in August. And I kind of would like to ask the team how they feel, because this is like, there's so much going on right now in um you know, in Edinburgh, it's like overwhelming, exciting. There's this buzz back in the city, um, you know, for better or worse for some people. But yeah, I just wanted to see how you guys felt the festival from your experience so far has been sort of connecting with it or what your opinions are, because I'm sure there's last night at, a, at the Cameo bar, there was some differing opinions on how that, you know, how this is working. So throw, throw out the controversy there. <laughs> I, I'd imagine your opinion on this probably depends on whether you're an Edinburgh resident or not, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, you know, I'm not an Edinburgh native, but I have lived in Edinburgh a long time now. Um, and I really like the 
fringe. I really like the festival. I like the range of stuff that's on and the way the city kind of like transforms and comes to life. It does come with its annoyances, you know, the use of public spaces for private, um, you know, production companies and, mm. you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of issues around there that annoy the, that annoy the shit out of me, to be honest. Um, I, it's very hard to get anywhere is the other thing. But I think in general, um, it's good. And I think for the film festival, I think it's probably good that it's moved to August, to be honest, um, on balance. Um, I think it also helps where it places it during the film festival calendar. I think it gets a slightly different lineup of films as a result. I think there's less pressure on it to have, um, you know, world premieres and such. And as such, I think it does get, you know, some other, some films that it wouldn't if it was this far, if it was even further ahead of London, say, or if it was even further ahead of Venice, or if it was, you know, just after Cannes or something. Like, it does get slightly different films, and I think it makes it a bit easier for it to get a, slightly more varied lineup um you know and opinions will differ on whether it succeeds on that in any given year but i think in general a move to august allows that so whether it's connecting up with the rest of the festival atmosphere in the city yeah i don't really know but i mean you know i mean the whole place just kind of is buzzing with activity so it's definitely linked into that so i think on balance it's probably a good thing but it's you know it, it comes with its pluses and minuses as does the festival in edinburgh to be honest Mm. I mean, I could do with more time. I could do with two Augusts. So having both at once would is <laughs> is distressing. The time means nothing to me now. <laughs> if it did and did mean anything tangible before, um, time is hurtling by. Trying to take everything in, uh, but no, I know. Yeah, you know, it makes it makes sense what you're saying, Jim. And obviously, I, I've lived here my whole life, so I do have a the, the love hate uh, experience uh, relationship with it, as all locals do. I like trying to go out last night was a nightmare. I had to call in all of our uh, all of our favors to try and get into clubs <laughs> instead of waiting for like an hour in a line of fifty people. Um, but yeah, it's fun. I wouldn't trade it. It's yeah, also finally like things are open late night, which you know, as you know, as a former New Yorker, you know, I mm. miss, I really love that like one. Although I'm not, I'm not actually out that late anymore. But like the possibility of this is very exciting. And, and I, I always I, miss the five AM license when it goes. Yeah, that's true. And I always like the fact that because we have so much sun at the moment, so it's just like it kind mm. of like teams up with that. Like it's really great to have sort of like things to do when it's sunny, and that the sun just seems to be never ending at the moment, which is quite good. Um, but I mean, I guess you also have to look from the perspective of are you losing people because there's so much on so obviously they can't see everything. But I do think often like people will be who were attracted to going and seeing more comedy will go and see that anyway. So they might not be coming and seeing like dramatic films. So it probably just does it a service of bringing more people in and giving them more things to do. I think I think you've hit something there, though, Isabel, like whether there's a bit more competition, because now mm. anybody who works at the film festival may not thank me for saying this, but certainly the, the screening of ad. So I didn't go to see After Sun at the press screening. I went to the I went to the, the gala screen and then the, the party afterwards. And the screening of the film, uh, you know, I, I'll leave my opinions on the film for now because we're going to review it, but it, it was happening in like three more or less concurrent screenings at the View mm. at the Omni Centre. And I think I was in like, I think the second screen or something. Like it was on the big main screen and then two smaller ones as well. The screen I was in wasn't full, which I think is pretty, pretty unusual for the opening film of Edinburgh Film Fest. So I was, I was a little surprised by that. So I think there could be a little bit of an element of there's maybe a bit more 
competition for for eyeballs at this time of year. So you know, as I say, it comes with pluses and minuses. I think it gets it more into the stuff is happening, right? Because I think the problem with some film festivals, and I think Edinburgh's occasionally suffering this, is people people who are not like plugged into film, right? They don't even necessarily know what's happening, right? Until it's yeah. like already started happening. You don't really have that problem during festival season because everybody's well aware that you know there's all sorts of stuff going on oh let's have a look at what's going on oh there's the book festival there's the television festival there's the fringe there's now the film festival yeah um so i think it probably gets a little bit it, it, it allows it to kind of like piggyback on just the fact that it's the festival you know capital mm. t capital f in edinburgh um so i think that helps but yeah i think there's maybe a bit more competition where there wouldn't normally be I wonder if the twilight screening at St. Andrew's Square will be full tonight. <laughs> well, I, it's, it, it doesn't look as busy as it, it, it was. Um, like, I've seen pictures of the outdoor stuff and it, it wasn't doesn't seem as busy as it was. And I wonder if like that outdoor screening stuff necessarily, because it wasn't always tied to the film festival in general, but mm. you know, you have millions more people in the city. So you do have the possibility of more access, at least visibility wise, you know, to like, to, mm. to the film festival. But also I think I've heard over the years, this discussion, because it was a huge controversy when they moved to June before and it was largely around mm -hmm. actually like funding from councils to suggest please spread mm -hmm. out activity across you know which I think uh, we all probably agree there's way yeah. too much happening in one month in Edinburgh but you know what about the other you know months and there's there's the, you know there's plenty of you know people I mean not to get not to go all angry local man about it but I would argue well, there's a lot happening across the other months as well I mean you're barely done with the festival and then like you know Princess Street Gardens are getting cordoned off for flipping Christmas markets oh that doesn't it, I don't think that counts know, so. I mean because that that can run in run parallel to a, an actual cultural festival you know, because you sort of you can mill yeah, around the, the it's Christmas it's situation. Still, and... It's still weird, weird private use of public space. Oh yeah, for sure. You for know, sure. so like, so I, when I say I, that's more what I'm I'm talking about. in yeah. terms of like you know competing with cultural events. Yeah, no, sure, you're absolutely mm. right, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I think the meaning I have is that there's quite a lot of tourism or whatever throughout the year. Why mm. does everything have to be focused on on one you know on one month? And that's always been a, quite an argument with that. And also, mm. as you were saying, the competition is going to come down because if you're having these really amazing acts from around the world mm. that have these mixtures of kind of like spoken word and you know like harp and you know music and and all this stuff, then like a film which is lovely, you know, mm -hmm. might, might not be able to kind of compete with it. No. On the other hand, I think one of the, one of the things that made the Edinburgh National Film Festival um, known over the years is that people often would want to come to the, come to Edinburgh in a time when it is really buzzy. So you can attract certain type of people who mm -hmm. might be yeah. here for the book festival, or they might be here for the TV festival. There's a, quite a lot of in, important people who come to those so maybe they can be then aligned with the film festival and then you're kind of like yeah bringing you're bringing the masses together in one time and then leaving the city rest for the for the locals perhaps slightly more I I, I see both sides I think regardless of the success of this year I feel like any and I was saying this to somebody in in a, a, a in the in a meeting after one film you know you gotta give you gotta give changes like this time 
And I always sort of like liken it to like football manager, like they never give the football manager enough time after he loses like six games or something like that. Like, let's try it out and see what happens. And, you know, and perhaps, you know, it might grow into something. Are you, you one know, of these Spurs? Are you one of these Spurs fans? It's a Nuno Espirito Santo apologist. Is <laughs> 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 that, that what I'm gathering from this? It's not his fault. <laughs> I don't ever. I won't tell you when I became a Spurs fan, and because <laughs> because it was right. around a manager who was only there for like four months, and I was shocked. I was like, "How would you get rid of such a lovely spe- human being Specimen. so quickly?" <laughs> And yet, um, um, frankly, uh, yeah, I've learned now they've gone through like 17 managers since then. So yes, I'm shocked that they, they pretend they, they, they get rid of them so quickly and they blame them, you know, uh, for, for toxic. everything. So toxic it's just, behavior. it's just one person, you know, they constant, like, and I think directors, artistic directors are what, and we have a new, I guess, artistic director for CMI for, for, for the Edinburgh International Film Festival. And I actually felt like it has a new energy. It feels like a new energy to the film festival. And so I'm kind of excited about that, but I feel like, I guess my, my point is to always give, give, um, you know, give change a little bit of time. That's, that's. Yeah. And for for everyone. I was just going to say for the festivals to speak to each other a bit more. Like, I think that would be really Mm -hmm. Like if they connected a bit more and made it a more harmonious community so that you were getting suggestions yeah. of, oh, yeah, these things are in close proximity. Why not jump from the book festival, go to a comedy show, then come and see a film? Like you could do all these program things together that I think there's just needs to be a bit more unity. From the perspective of everyone uh, that I know that lives here, we we can't afford to do everything like that we'd like to yeah. do. So I, th- I feel like the, the festivals could be much more lucrative if they're spread out between a couple of paychecks as opposed to one month's paycheck. You know, like I'm having to make financial yeah. decisions, not decisions on time and scheduling even. It's just, I, yeah, I, I think it'd be much better if we had for, to, to everyone listening that may be able to influence such decisions, book festival and the film festival together in one month, that'd be fantastic. And then leave the fringe as it is in August. Please give, so me, give me more time. Festivals. And yeah, we can yeah. have a jazz festival too. Book, jazz. And the jazz. Yeah, book, yeah. jazz, That's film. A good little trio. Exactly. <laughs> That's busy enough. And then, yeah, exactly. And then Fringe can just have have at it. Well, yeah. I have a My feeling we'll opinion. be making the final decision, but we've, we've put our <laughs> suggestions out there and take them, please, Edinburgh Council <laughs> or whoever's in charge. Um, we have, yeah, we have our thoughts. We'll start then with uh, our, our first film, which was which, which premiered. It was a, a UK premiere of After Sun, but it premiered at Cannes originally. Um, it's uh, it's uh, directed by Charlotte Wells, and I'm just going to throw this at Isabel if she want. Do you want to give an intro to the, the film? Why not? Um, so basically, this is about the story of um, a young man. So he's early thirties, and he has an eleven year old daughter. He's not with, no longer with the mother of the daughter and he and the daughter go on a trip to, I believe it's Turkey, to sort of um, basically have a summer together, a summer holiday together. In the meantime, he's struggling with mental health issues and, yeah, we just basically see the two of them connecting over a series of about a week and, yeah, it's just this very quiet, very considered look at 
what it means to be a child who's growing up and an adult who's trying to be there and trying to step up, but also still dealing with what you're dealing with in your own personal life. And I found this film incredibly confronting and very moving and was quite disoriented after I came out of the cinema. So I'll throw it open to everyone to have a chat about this and then come back and say some more opinions on that. I absolutely loved this film. I kind of expected I would because I, we, you know, um, Cinetopia kind of came out of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, Charlotte Wells' short film Blue Christmas had won, uh, best got a short a few years ago, uh, Jamie Robson's kind of a friend of Cinetopia who was in, in that film, so I've known of Charlotte Wells' work over the years, and to see this as the, her debut feature, um, I, I've had a lot of expectation for it, it, it had a great buzz in Cannes, um, it did not disappoint, and it didn't disappoint in a way that I was sort of, I was I was really, it took me a couple, as you said, when you left, you felt like you needed, you know, like that you, you were kind of blown away. And it took, I think both Claire and I were sitting close to each other and I, I needed about 30 minutes to an hour to kind of process how, how I felt about it because um, I just, I just needed that time. And I thought like, I, I really loved the perspective and the way that it was filmed around a young a young person at that age. And I felt there was something so reflective about, and just the way everything was shot with close-ups and sort of even almost like sensual imagery and, and sort of like slow moments to kind of breathe and take this in is that you really felt like you were it from her point of view and so many ways of how you observe the world. And I guess maybe particularly did not have that kind of similar situation. I've never been on at a, one of these inclusive holiday resorts, although it does look kind of fun. And, uh, but I do feel like that that age, especially as an only child, which I've experienced has this kind of, this, this feeling of isolation. And that isolation came across really well with the way that it was filmed, the sounds, the like the, you know, the sort of observational experience that one has, and also kind of a little bit of a listless way. Um, I, mm. I, I did mention one bit where it's like, I really, you know, I don't like Sofia Coppola and where I think Lost in Translation does try to create this like isolation and observation of a, of a, of a woman kind of feeling, you know, lost. I think this film does it in a, a much better way where she, they're trying, where she, she's trying to navigate between what age she is, where she'll be growing up and how to deal with her father, who's obviously going through um, you know, who we learn through certain clues is having mental health, you know, issues. And I think it handles it really powerfully. Mm. It really grew on me as I was watching it. I mean, um, yeah. And upon reflection afterwards, but yeah, as it sort of unfurled into a really, really genuine and sort of delicate and understated study of memory and the mental health of a parent and how entangled uh, they are in an interaction over the course of years. Um, uh, yeah, it really, it really grew on me. Slow burner, but it was uh, so mellow and so understated and so nostalgic and meditative as well. Yeah. About the incumbent fears of being a parent and the pressures and the joy of being a parent and the father-daughter relationship, which is quite a, which hasn't been studied too much in this way. I mean, when I think of um, father-daughter relationships on screen, I can think of some kind of intense examples. Um, with with a lot of a lot of deep drama and darkness, but this one's so much more so much more gentle, mm -hmm. which I find interesting, but not less impactful for it, which says a lot. Um, Charlotte Wells described it as emotionally autobiographical, which I find interesting. She said she'd not specifically been on such a holiday 
and it's not about her relationship with her father, um, but it's imbued with similar feelings, which I'm sure a lot of us can relate to. And it really captures that childhood feeling of the holiday as some kind of a, a wonderful, dreamy, heterotopic space where it's, it's another temporary world of possibility and of change, which mirrors, but also like disturbs the world that you've that you've left behind. And um, they inhabit this space in the resort and we see it sort of helps strengthen their bonds, but also form new ones, but also disrupt and completely disturb the characters because they're confronted so much with their own selves, their own fears, their discomforts, and the, the reality that the time they have together in this way is so temporary. I find that really interesting. Yeah, the, the temporality of it was, was interesting to look back on and reflect on. Um, so yeah. I was going to say, I love how it played with that concept of time. Like you really felt like you were in these sort of elements of the stickiness of when you're on a holiday and you have those moments of intense boredom and mm. you move past it, but then you know that there's these incredible moments as well that are sort of like snapshots in your mind that you will hold forever. And I like that they play around with that with the camera. But I think one thing I found incredibly moving about the film itself was I thought that it took us on, say, a time journey of mental illness so it mm. sort of reminded me of you had these extreme highs that they were both going through and you saw these extreme highs and then these extreme lows and just these element where with families you're so innately honest with each other and how you know how to hurt someone and that they both do that to each other and I find you know just with words and it's one of those things of well sometimes you can't take back what you've said no matter how much you want to or what you've done and yeah I really like the way that she's playing around with that it's kind of like she's like ripping off layers of skin and getting mm. into that deep emotional core of what it means to be a human and have human family relationships. Yeah. Mm. And loneliness, I, um... loneliness as well. Because being a child can feel extremely lonely, like just the lonely corners of childhood where even just like the people that are even a few years younger, older than you just seem to be, to exist across this great gulf of experience and where that can leave you in experiencing the world and interacting with everyone. Yeah. I think in addition to everything that Folka mentioned there, um, it, it's pretty remarkable for a first feature, I think. This is a really accomplished film. Now, I, I, I've, I've had my eye on it for a while because, um, as Amanda mentioned, Blue Christmas, Charlotte Wells' last short uh, before she made this um, one best Scottish short at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, and I interviewed her around it there, and I watched her other short films in preparation for that interview and they really are very good like she, mm. she she she's very very skilled and i've recommended another one of hers uh laps um uh, as one of the short film recommendations on the show before and then the first one that she made tuesday is actually very good as well i think i'm really and when we did that interview she mentioned that she was working on what presumably is now after song because it was it was meant it was about a, uh, a girl on holiday with her father um I, I really, really like this. Um, there are a number of elements to it that I think work extremely well. Um, all three of you have all, have all mentioned elements of that already. I think there is something it captures in particular. Now, I honestly can't remember if I ever did go on a holiday like this as a kid, but it, it just seems to capture something about kind of like 90s UK holiday makers. Yeah. That really rings true with me. I can't quite put my, my finger on exactly what it is, but there's a lot of little tiny attentions to to detail, like you know, the uh, the arcade, the, the motorbike arcade game that the uh 
Sophie character, you know, the young girl plays with uh, another boy who kind of like takes a shine to her. There's that, the sort of the, you know, hotels with crap building sites across. Or like, there's, there's lots of little kind of like bits and pieces that are very, very nicely observed. On a technical level, though, I think this film is really, really good as well. So someone that Charlotte Wells worked with in those shorts is um, the editor of this film, Blair McClendon, who also edited The Assistant, uh, which I thought was an extremely technically accomplished film. Mm. And there are a number of transitions in this film, which I think just work absolutely superbly. You know, there's one early on where you see her father... um, doing tai chi on the balcony basically and it's night and then there's a kind of a jump cut to daylight and kind of like someone said it works superbly there's a shot at the conclusion of the film which i won't kind of like say what it is but there's just a a continuous camera move where you know there's obviously a hidden cut there but it's done it's done so well that and the tone that that then sets it's really really quite um really quite something for the conclusion of the film another thing that i was very impressed by is the use of music in the film now mm. the, the use of music is kind of it's, it's kind of serving two purposes right one there's a certain attempt to set time and place right you know there's all saints on the soundtrack there's mm-hmm. uh chumbawamba uh blur uh catatonia right it's a very sort of like mm. 90s focused thing now it's not exclusively that because there is other stuff in there which is from you, you know like if you're going to nitpick you'd probably place it slightly later and there's some stuff there's obviously a lot earlier and one key example of it is uh under pressure by queen and david bowie Mm. but the way that the music is used is really really again there's it's attention to detail is really well observed there's the way the music is edited in in particular the use of under pressure when you see the film you will see the way that that's been done obviously it's manipulated but it really it really just changes the tone of that scene and really kind of brings it home. But in terms of other things and foreshadowing what is going to happen in the film, there's other uses of uh, music. And I think it's the the blur one, Tender, which is stuck in my head. Hmm. There's certain lyrics it lingers on and there's certain bits when it kind of like, you know, fades away to focus on dialogue that I think really, really get across what is going on with, in particular, Paul Mescal's character, Callum, the father. Um, and I think it, it, in terms of how how the film is put together, I think is really superb. Because I think with a first feature and maybe first bigger budget, set, it would be very easy, I think, and I, you know, you have seen this happen a lot of times, for people to kind of like, as filmmakers, maybe get a bit carried away, right? Yeah. But I think it's still very, very precisely observed and put together in the same way that our short films were. And I think it's ended up as a really excellent quite restrained feature as a result but it's very much in a a less is more sense right mm. um you know you can enjoy that soundtrack but it really adds to the film it's not just a flashy addition um you can aesthetically like the transitions but it really kind of puts you in that space and what the characters um what the characters are feeling i i, I was really impressed with this i mean i, I was hoping i would be I I've not come out disappointed. I really do think it. I, I really do think it's excellent. It's a it's an excellent film, and I think it will do. It it should do pretty well. I think. I I was gonna I I, I piggyback on what you said about restrained, and I think that's the part that I really liked most about it is because mm. specifically around some of these clues that you know you 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 start to see 
uh, like you don't know too much about the whole history, the backstory, you know, what's going to happen in the future is a bit sort of nebulous, which is similar again with, as Jim suggested, checking out um, Charlotte's other shorts, you know, Blue Christmas has some sort of mysteries mm. to it as well. Um, but one of the words that hit me, and you see you mentioned blur, but one of the words that hit me halfway through the film that I was like, this felt really tender. And it really, it, I, I thought this film just felt like the relationship was quite tender, all of these sort of relationships that were built. And I really felt like, I, I just, I felt like it was very warm and comfortable, even though it was a very, like, very complicated, you know, storyline as well. So, you know, but like, I just thought it was a very tender film. And um and 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 really appreciated that. The only thing I would say, and um, this is probably just my bias of the fact that I do happen to enjoy normal people on the occasional, like just watch it like when I need like a little go-to uh, comfort zone. Um, it was hard for me to place uh, the age of of the of the father character for a while. And again, that might just be my bias of seeing him as a younger person in high school. Um, and I think that that. It, like at one point they kind of have to clarify his his age so but mm -hmm. it didn't it didn't take away from the film it was just again something where the age was you know the age and I think that was sort of the point that the age uh, between the two characters was maybe slightly uh closer for it was hard for me to buy for the very beginning until they like said oh he's over 30 or something like that so but um but I um so I think he was meant to be 31 and yeah. I bought that completely because I was like he had her when he was 20 yeah. and a lot of people have children very young and it kind of makes sense that the position that he's in now and why he also could still have that loving sort of relationship with the mother of Sophie because of the fact that you know he was never going to stay with that woman the whole amount of time and I liked that it sets a place of why he's in the position he's in and also dealing with mm -hmm. the issues he's dealing with because that kind of is something that you deal with in those young 30s. And I think Charlotte Wells, from a few interviews I've heard, I think that she said that she had that sort of thing. That's why she made the film because she looks back on her parents and she's like, you were so young. This is me now. Mm. And you already had like a 14-year-old daughter. This is crazy. Um, but I think um, as we've been talking, I realised like why I found it so upsetting and so moving. And it was that I think it's just in society, we just, you know, pass away like the gentility in relationships. We don't value that. And I think this really showed how beautiful relationships can be and how the relationship was so honest and so pure. And it's just not something that's valued so much in like a capitalist driven world. And I think that's just so sad. And yeah. yeah. One thing that I want to touch on there, like just following off what Isabel said there, and also links in a little bit with what Amanda said there, because Amanda, you said it was a fairly complicated story. Mm. I'd actually argue, I'm not sure it is a complicated story, but to link into what Isabel said, what it does have is it does have a very complicated tone, I think, right? Because there is a lot of there is a lot of balancing things going on here because like obviously the father character has a lot of internal struggle going on or at least is trying to move beyond some internal struggle he's had before and there's a framing device which you know which i'll, I'll make explicit because it's pretty much at the opening of the film it does recur at a few different points where it's uh, an adult sophie kind of like observing in a sort of like a clubbing scene through strobe lights her father dancing right so it's very clear from the start that this is not going to be a, a happy, breezy story about a kid on, you know, and I think if you'd seen her short films, you'd probably know, that you'd probably realise that anyway, but the, the film itself sets out very clearly early on and with certain kind of 
shot and score rather than soundtrack choices later on that you know it's not going to be a happy breezy story it may have happy breezy moments as has been alluded to by everybody here but it's not going to be a happy breezy story and i think that that balancing of tone is done really really superbly because you can get things across like that relationship being really quite great in one moment and it'd been a bit dysfunctional in another and i think that and that's sometimes it doesn't always come across well on screen with these sort of things is you know a relationship can be more than one thing and it can be more than one thing from one day to the next um i think what is really really good about that is it allows you to sympathize with characters whilst also having moments where you're like good lord what are you doing like because there are a couple of times where like you know mm. the, the, the father character will do something where you can go wow that's wildly irresponsible you should not be doing that but then the context and the tone within which it's placed means that you still you still value that character you still value what he's going through you still value the relationship with the daughter and that's a very difficult thing to pull off that's a very difficult thing to pull off and this film does it and I think the way it does it is the performances, the, you know, Paul Mescal's the father, Frankie Corio, who I think is absolutely remarkable, actually, is the young, the young girl. I think it's her first film, as far as I'm aware. Um, they do this superbly, but then all the other elements that we've already men- mentioned, Wells' direction, the editing, I think it all comes together to set that tone, and that's the key thing to making that central relationship feel the way it does. And I think that's where the, the biggest lasting strength of the film lies i mean i say it's got a lot there's loads of little bits of attention to detail that i think are great like you know like there's one shot that lingers on like pools pool balls being dispensed out of a pool table and it's one of these images i just remember from childhood and you know putting the coin on the table to reserve the pool you know it's just it's little things like that where the little attention to detail is great but in a on a bigger scale it's that setting of the tone of the film that makes that relationship work and ends up telling the story that it wants to rather than what we project onto it. I, if I, I said, it, oh, sorry. I was just, I'm trying to figure out why, uh, why it's grown on me so much. And I think I've just realized that it's because it did initially seem simple. I mean, despite the complexities, as you mentioned, Jim, of the tone and the complexity of the characters and their struggles and their, their, their relationship over time, um, it, it, you, you could get your head around it, but in in hindsight, to think that actually um, the memories that Sophie is reflecting on are a collection of real and imagined ones. I think I've read that on Screen Scotland. Um, there's a synopsis of it. So when you consider it in that from that point of view, that makes it much more layered and complex to consider that Sophie might actually be trying to conjure up some kind of an understanding or insight into what her father was going through. So the scenes that we see or how she imagines him struggling and uh, maybe, and then and then it kind of casts aspersions on some of the good memories as well. So are those imagined or those are projected, a projection of what she wished it had been like? And, well, and we're all, we're all unreliable narrators in our Exactly. Own. Yeah. And, that's, so, and that's exactly memory. And I, and I think precisely. if I said, if I said complicated, I think what I meant to say mm. is mysterious. And I think mm. what I was suggesting and which mm. connects to Blue Christmas is that a lot of those answers those the, the, the things aren't answered. We don't know exactly mm. what the mental health crisis that potentially the main the father character goes mm-hmm. through. We don't know, and there were parts where we didn't know whether or not he was potentially still alive. You know, so yeah. there were these mysterious moments that could have gone in the. We will explain this exactly so that mm. you know this, 
but as you brought up Clara or and Isabel that memories are sort of the these are things that maybe these are the first time that the this young person noticed these sort of situations because they had this long extended period of time to spend together which then sort of translated into you know future you know relationship issues that were in like you said in this disco scene or something like that but um but really really well done in terms of keeping the mystery but also focusing on the relationship and I think that's and, and a very specific period of time which I think works really well mm. The, the only other thing I would say is I really, really enjoyed the sweaty, awkward depiction of that blossoming, like, teenage romance. I was like, this yes. is so <laughs> funny. This is exactly what it's like. It's like, you're here, I'm here, we're of an appropriate age. It was the, just the, the debate between British kids from different regions about what exactly they were calling kissing as well, that rang pretty true. That yeah. was pretty accurate, <laughs> that one. That was, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, very much um, a great film after sun. It's uh, good for a summer a watch as well. <laughs> if you didn't get to go on your own summer holiday, um, all inclusive. Uh, so check it out if you can. I think it's coming out in November via movie, so it'll be out. Um, but if you get a chance to see it at a film festival um, before then, please do. Uh, we highly recommend it. Okay, so the next film we're going to review is New Tuesday. It's the midterm, the midway gala of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. And since we're airing this on a Tuesday, it is actually on Tuesday evening. So you might, if it's not sold out, you should go check it out. Um, and uh, Jim's going to give us a little review or overview of what the film's about. So I'll keep this fairly short, but the, um, the if you've seen any of the, the copy written for promoting this film it will be talking about it being a gibberish film and the reason for this is basically uh the cast perform this film in an entirely made up language um if you listen to it it kind of sounds like the sort of bastard child of swedish dutch and norwegian or something it sounds you know it sounds vaguely sort of scandinavian come you know low countries type uh, language but it is very much made up um and the idea is as far as i'm aware three different versions of this film exist um so the, the version which is screening with the version which we've all seen and is screening at the film festival has subtitles written by the british comedian julia davis um there's another cut out there which um exists with subtitles written by i think two new zealand comedians i forget their names uh, but there's two of them and then there's a yet yeah, third cut which actually exists with no subtitles whatsoever. So you project your own your own kind of you know impressions of what is going on onto it. In a basic sense, though, there is a there is still a kind of like a structure around this. And basically, you have um, Laura and Bruno, who are a married couple with kids who are you know let's say they're probably they're stuck in a bit of a rut. He's a bit hapless. She's very stressed and harried. Um, and they are given the opportunity to go to this retreat, uh, which certainly in the, in the version that, that we watched, they're kind of, I think, pretty fairly unaware of at the time. Um, 
it's all very sexually focused. It's basically a retreat run by a kind of self-appointed guru called Bjorg, uh, who is played by Jermaine Clement of um, Flight of the Concords fame and various other film stuff that he's gone on to do in recent years. I think, I think you know, what we do in the shadows, I think he was in the film version of that as well. But, you know, he's, he's very well known at this point. Um, so basically, it then follows them and the various comedic happenings there. Uh, and what effect that has on their relationship and how they see each other and how open they are and how vulnerable they are with each other. Um, so that's the, the story set up. I'll leave the kind of the impressions to everybody, everybody here first, but that's, that's the basic story. But the main hook is this idea that it's in a made-up language. There is no kind of, or at least certainly to the people who were writing the subtitles, there's no real kind of, you know... Um, hard and fast rules about how they were to, to do it but obviously there's some overlap but yes yeah, so there's three different versions the versions we saw was subtitled by julia davis so what did everybody what did everybody think of it oh my god i loved it <laughs> it was uh it's it's very kiwi <laughs> in its um in its sort of lightheartedness and surrealness and sort of effortless layers of comedy <laughs> um it's yeah it's, it's sort of like uh, i would say it's i described it to my friend last night is like the lobster on mushrooms um, and yeah, it has it has this brilliant, um, surreal comic energy that I just loved, and this this uh, grand world building, which I found so intriguing as well. So, um, it being entirely set on this entirely fictitious island, um, with a completely fictitious language, which is just so novel. Uh, yeah, loved it. Um, I loved it as well, and I um I found it so fascinating from the perspective of you're making me read subtitles immediately. And I think that someone should write a yeah. giant paper on this and look into, does this make it feel like a European film? Because I would say it definitely does compared to a lot of like Kiwi films that we normally mm. see. And you instantly give it a more level, like layer of prestige onto and when you're actually watching it. But then also from the perspective of, well, making subtitles more accessible because of the fact you've already bought into the faces of these characters that you know. So people might be more, you know, attuned to actually going and seeing this as opposed to not seeing it but um yeah so I was expecting to go in and enjoy this I love Jackie Van Beek love Jermaine love Damon um and I'm very fascinated by like nudist retreats and something that I find personally just a most fascinating concept in all of these like sort of sexual retreats and like I find it bizarre that people go on these as holidays and yeah they work through things but yeah, it was just really good fun. Ridiculous, hilarious. Um, I can recommend this film to everyone to go and see. And visually stunning. The way that they shot things to do with the mountains and using the lakes, it was just a very pretty film. Mm. It managed, I, I liked that it had a darkness to it as well. So it was kind of, yeah, <laughs> there was a darkness, there was a sadness. I mean, you can't really send up um, people for having um, pathetic and frustrating lives without without it being a little bit grim at times, but it manages to lighten it completely. Uh, it's just it's hilarious. So there's just there's a line that encapsulates encapsulates it for me. It's um they're having an argument in front of their in front of their children. They say one says I'm sick of my life, and the other goes everyone's <laughs> sick of their lives. <laughs> and then to, and then uh, they address the children who you barely see for the rest of the film, and just says your mother and I are actually very happy. <laughs> just this is. Complete bald face lying. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, well, it's that time again. I did not love this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're back here again at this point on the show. I, I'm just happy it's I, not me for once. 
Yeah, I, I admired I admire a lot of the creative. Let, let, let's start with positives though, right? Because it's not that it's not that I like intensely disliked it or something. I was just left a bit indifferent by it, to be yeah. honest. Um, I do admire a lot of the creativity. I think the I think this idea of um you know performing it in a made-up language but more importantly a made-up language that nobody else understands you know it's not like it's you know because you get people out there who know how to write and speak you know elvish, elvish and Tolkien, yeah. Tolkien and things like that but you know literally and literally a you know completely non-understandable language i admire the creativity to perform and film entirely in that way and i think it's worth noting that the the performance of the cast i think is really good and i think they're they have a the you know the, so basically the three leads I would classify them right so Jackie Van Beek is Laura the wife Damon Herriman is Bruno the husband and then the you know the sort of the spiritual leader if you like um, played by Jermaine Clement <laughs> they are all very skilled performers right they are all very skilled performers and they have a real talent for kind of just making things sound funny you know mm. I I think that I, I I add that to Jermaine Clement in particular mm. I think ultimately though. I, I have to be honest, I do think it has allowed what is a pretty mundane and, you know, a pretty well-worn story to sneak in under the radar here. You know, like the, the, the old classic, you know, tired couple. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. It just, and then it doesn't say, like, if you told me that the comedian who wrote the, the subtitles of this was British, I would believe you, because mm. it has this sort of this curious British tendency for kind of, like, coming up with twee names for genitals, basically, you know, and, like, it has that at various different points in the subtitles. It's just, like, you know, it's it's kind of the same joke a million times. Um, so I didn't find the subtitles themselves particularly new or funny I, I you know i i did find myself relying more on the actual physical performance of the the cast right um you, you know like you know jermaine clement basically in the middle of a three-way or something and they're making a polite inquiry as to whether somebody needs something and then you know damon Hedeman giving up on sex halfway through because he's so annoyed and then stomping off theatrically and things like like there were a lot of things which i think were carried by the cast and i don't think the script that has been superimposed on the top of it, I I don't think it really adds that much. Um, I, yeah. now, how, now, how much of that is down to the original framework that there is to work with, and how much is done to down to kind of the the subtitles themselves? I don't know. I mean, it's probably a little, you know, it's probably a little call me a little column B, but I can't I can't honestly say I found this horrendously funny. Um, it has its moments. It okay. raised it raised plenty of chuckles out of me, but. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I, I. I'd be lying if I said I was as amused as amused by the film as I was by the premise, and by the uh, just the the physical performance of the the lead cast. Mm. I saw the subtitles as a as a little extra, you know. I mean, I, I enjoyed the fact that they were just completely that Julie Davis was just sort of a task and given free reign to come up with anything, and she and she struggled with it technically and also because she was given such free reign. I think what one of the um, I think the director said to her, like, oh, can, here's a here's a fun uh, thought exercise. Why don't you try and set it on another planet and see if that kind of inspires you to, to come up with better jokes? Um, so, so knowing that, um, 
and being able to separate those two things and thinking of, thinking of it as like a collaborative project with different strains so you can choose to kind of pay attention to just the film or you can choose to pay attention to the subtitles I think that helped me because I do agree it does feel like the same joke over and over sometimes and it does it is very much superimposed it does sound it does seem like somebody has just come up with their own subtitle track and just superimposed it but there are some really great elements like the, some phrases that she comes up with but that really just show her talent as a as a comedy writer so um when Jermaine Clement's character the um the cult leader is is describing his his protégés and himself he refers to them as soul miners and sex voyagers and I just thought that was fucking hilarious I'm an eagle pimp with a bit of a grudge that was a good one as well and those long tones so many sexy endearing long tones <laughs> And I'm just like, what is this? Is that a sexy yeah. thing? If you're, if you're in the mood just to chuckle at something silly, like then it will go down a treat. If and if you like sure. and if you like sort of like New Zealand sense of humour, like I think because yeah. it's so like um, representative of that particular area as well and so similar. You see, that, I, you see that's the funny thing because I think a lot of New Zealand comedy, like, I, I really like it. I, I really like it. The subtitles felt very late 90s British Yes. Alt comedy to me, to be honest. and like, and I, I say that as a sort of I get that, you know, uh, th- like I like that, but this particular, like, it, it wasn't all successful, like, you know, it, it felt mm-hmm. like a couple, I, a few of the lines felt like, like, to actually just take this with the Julia Davis connection here, actually, I, I, a couple, a few of the subtitles felt like skits they would have rejected from Big Train, to be honest, yeah. it, like, you know, um. I actually think I would probably have enjoyed this film more if I'd seen the version without subtitles, to be honest. But don't, uh, you like, think, don't you think, Jim, that you're coming from the bias of that this is like, you know, New Zealand, Australian film industry is still a relatively young industry. So it's not got the classical roots that, say, British comedy has or, you know, American Well, well no, because I think the British element here is the bit that failed it. Well, exactly. Like, so that's what I'm saying. Well, so they're trying out new things that haven't really been done before. I don't know. I think, I, I mean, I'm actually going to agree with Jim very, which is very odd, usually. Uh, <laughs> we, we rarely agree. You, you, you don't need to sound so surprised, man. <laughs> um, and I, I liked your, I didn't find it horrendously funny because I, you know, I, I came out of a so much good. more serious and funny uh, a film I'll talk about uh, later and then watched this and did not find it horrendously funny and actually felt the gimmick to be kind of frustrating and, but still thought, you know, like you said, performance is good, scenery great, you know, like a sl- slapstick comedy. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm the greatest uh, expert on New Zealand comedy, but what I've seen, I really enjoyed. I just, this wasn't, this wasn't the film for me um, in terms, in terms of making me hysterically laugh um, and, and really feeling like it, it held together for me, but you know, but I, I think just to, to go back to the, the, the point you were making as well, right? I think that you're right. It, it is new and it is kind of like innovative. But I think the problem is it need, it kind of needs to have the courage of its convictions there, right? Because I actually think what's happened is the subtitles have ended up making it feel a lot more staid and twee and run of the mill than I think it actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that's a result of the repetitive type of gag that is in the script right because yeah. if you if you've watched enough british comedy right and you know we could talk about the classical roots of british comedy but like british comics love to come up with student not student to love to come up with um you know innuendo for genitals right that you could write entire cyclopedias with the things that you know people's genitals and 
private parts have been called in British comedy. And that comes through just so loud and clear in the script. It's like if there's any opportunity to give it some silly twee name, it happens. And it's just, I feel like the the inventiveness of the idea and the gift that they've actually been kind of given with the, the physical performances of the cast, I think it's wasted with the subtitle. Trend. Like, I, I really would... I, and in terms of them trying something new, to an extent, they still achieved their goal because I would be really interested to see this film with the other set of subtitles to see what mm. I made of it and without the subtitles to see how I felt about it there because the, the, the element of it that didn't work for me is very much that part of it. Like, you know, the, you know, the more absurdist elements, like, you know, like a, a lesbian couple having sex in the woods while they're looking after a chicken, which is standing next to them. You know, the, the couple trying to have sex in the woods while they oversee a goat and it's in this ridiculous set, like, you know, and then, you know, the Bjorg, Jermaine Clement's character, sort of like, you know, you get little hints here and there about, like, you know, he's not this spiritual leader. He's just a bit of a doofus like the rest of them. And, you know, and then there's one particular sort of, like, I suppose you'd call it a sex scene by a lady between two of the main characters where it's just, it that that is hilarious. It is funny. But the thing that's funny there is the stupid weird noises that they make mm. and the body language and the way they interact it's not the subtitles it, it honestly yeah. i think that let it down for me and it just it gave it this air of it gave it this air to me and this will probably sound unnecessarily harsh but you can take it what way you want because like sometimes these are very funny and sometimes these are not very funny it came across some of the subtitles like sort of like pseudo student improv yeah and like and sometimes that works really well sometimes it doesn't work at all and for me it's somewhere in between but it's more towards the end of not working for me so i think that is it's mainly that's the part of it to let it down for me Mm. yeah i think i would probably do the same and try to without the subtitles because i think i was probably this also focused on the subtitles way more and and maybe that's how i watch films i focus very highly on the subtitles but i don't know I do want to call it that I think that the guy who played Rufus being Ian Zaro, that I think he's going to become a huge star. Like his facial expressions were incredible. No, I mean, like even, even, <laughs> even, the, even, the, even the supporting <laughs> cast and side roles, right? They, they do very well, right? It's, it, they are just, they, they are just funny performances. It's it's other parts that didn't work for me, unfortunately. But. So, Jim, yeah. it didn't make you want to have a pet goat? I don't know if I could have a pet goat because I've eaten goat and I quite like eating goat, so I don't think I'd be able to keep a pet goat for a while. <laughs> what about a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> there was something beautiful about just having a pet, like, goat or, like, a pet pig. And I was like, that seems quite nice. Well, I don't know. Actually, I better not say that. That's a spoiler. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad that we have. Yeah, it's a mixed, uh, mixed opinion. I like a little, like a little disagreement. So, uh, but it's New Tuesday is happening this Tuesday. Uh, screening here in the Edinburgh International Film Festival. So check it out. Half of us really like it. So the final film we're going to review is official competition directed by Gaston Duprat and Mariano Cohn. Um, Clara, tell us about this film. So uh, official competition. Uh, 
The film begins with a question posed by an incomprehensibly rich pharmaceutical mogul, which is how to be immortal, how to leave an impression and a legacy, and it's such an indelible mark on culture and society, so as to be revered and remembered for generations beyond your death. And uh, the punchline is that the mogul decides the best way to do this is to make a movie. Uh, and that really sets the tone for the rest of the film um, because it lets us know this is going to be a total send up of the filmmaking world and filmmaking process and the pretensions and uh, the powerful characters at the center of that process. Uh, so then we go on to see the creative process um, of the two lead actors and the tensions and, and bitterness and petty rivalry um, between the two lead actors and also the, um, uh, the film's director, who is an eccentric dynamo directress um who who plays god and toys with these men um so yeah i loved it personally i thought it was brilliant um I, it consists of many different vignettes and different scenes um which which i which i just loved because each could stand alone as a sketch and i think it, i think it pulls off this sort of like dark uh, satirical humor that um i think i feel like spanish directors and filmmakers do just so much better than than, than many others do uh, but yeah, I'll go into I'll go into more. But what do you guys think? Oh, I loved it. I loved it so much. I feel like this is the first time I've been on this podcast and actually enjoyed all of the films that we've watched. Um, but yeah, me too, I, me too. this one was so goddamn good. Um, mm. It was um, from. I loved the fact that they set Penelope Cruz as Lola. This you know crazy sort of director who was just I mean because she's this powerful godlike figure and mm. I quite enjoyed that it was a woman doing that and playing with the strings of two men and I would love to see endlessly Penelope and Antonio Banderas on screen together but I think it was this idea of like it really showed the director process and I liked that it puts you in that zone whereas if you think you want to be an actor maybe watch this film because I feel it really represents what you'll be going through when you're under a director who's actually directing you because it gets into that minutia of where well, you're going to be put to the test of your limits and that's to bring out these incredible performances and then whether you want to act out of spite and you know sort of undermine the film or whether you want to go with those emotions and embrace them. Uh, I like the element of the two brothers fighting against each other and then the two lead men sort of fighting against each other as well to sort of bring those characters to life. And again, just incredibly well shot. It was very Spanish and very, very impressive to me. I, um, I enjoyed this a lot. Um, I think it, it, it feels very symbolic to me that it opens with like i think i'm pretty sure the very first shot is a is a painting of a sad clown right and i think mm. it, it it just seems to set the set the tone nicely for me um i think what i also like about it is it toes the line very well between sort of you know a slight reverence for what is being done but also not taking seriously poking a lot of fun at it because now it's you know i mean i think um Amanda in particular will have dealt with, um, you know, actors a lot more than I have. But in in a role like interviewing them and going to all these film festivals, or I've spoken to a lot of actors over the years, and a lot of the time, they do they do straddle the line between sort of precious ridiculousness and inspired method for getting like into character and this sort of thing. And I think the performances that you've got here. Um, at the centre from uh, Antonio Banderas and just let me remind myself who the other actor is. I've already forgotten his name. Oscar. Um, yeah. Oscar, Oscar Martinez. Martinez. Yeah. I think, that, you know, and they play these kind of like 
you know, these dueling approaches. You've got the Anto- you've got Antonio Banderas' character, Felix, who's kind of an Antonio Banderas type, right? But I think he's probably meant to have been, you know, in slightly dumber films and maybe Antonio Banderas has been in, on average, right? Because, yeah. you know, Ant- Antonio, <laughs> well. you know, Antonio Banderas has got yeah. a few flags in his filmography, right? Um, <laughs> and this sort of, like, slightly more studied theatre, academic-focused actor in uh, Ivan, who's Oscar Martinez's character. And the... The the thing that the thing that's really quite funny about it is at any given moment, either one of them can look like a precious fool, and the mm. other one like they're do they're the the actual professional, and it kind of goes back and forth. And I think that that's a really in, impressive balance to pull off in terms of kind of like the slightly out there way that creatives sometimes approach work. I think Penelope Cruz is superb. I think I think all of the three leads she's a standout for me because I think that's the that's the the role where it kind of sums the film up and when it's kind of like it's it's balancing this idea of you know being innovative and creative and finding new ways to come at things and being an absolute maniac and just being you know a little bit a little bit crazy i think it it balances all those things really pretty well um it's a very funny film it's got some very good sight gags actually you know oh, i mean yeah. we're talking we're talking a lot but we're talking a lot about the you know the interplay between the, the three main the three main characters here but you know there's there's one involving a rock in particular i'll leave it for the film where i think it, it's just it's just beautifully done light farce you know and there's a lot of elements mm. in the film where it pulls that off really really pretty well um so I think it, it's balancing a few things. It does different types of comedy really very well. Um, the performances, I think, are all great. I mean, you know, there's one, to give an example of the kind of the, you know, the, the two men, like, playing off one another, there's one where they're sitting down and they're kind of sitting in chairs opposite each other and they're both going through the kind of, like, their warm-up routines, you know, <laughs> like how they get themselves, um, you know, ready to go. And it it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, it's not. I I wouldn't say it's necessarily particularly sort of, you know, um, imagined inventive. But the performance of how they pull it off is just it's just funny. I mean, it's just it's it's different to sort of like the film we've just spoken about New Tuesday in that regard. But um, it's every bit is accomplished in how it gets it across. And I think that's that's all to do with um, you know some of the framing for the visual gags, but also the performances and how they've gotten to play play amongst one another the only thing i would the only thing i would say about it is i think your reaction to how the film looks will depend on how much you go with it because i think it's pretty obvious to me this was filmed under covid restrictions right Mm, there's a lot of there's a lot of cavernous sets and you know very open settings and a lot of you know sort of like dead space around the actors and i think for me it kind of worked right because it very you know it kind of like you know centered them in frame a lot and just focused very specifically in on what what they were doing in a way that i don't think it would have if it had been so i mean i think the important thing to mention here is this follows them while they're basically rehearsing for the film right you don't really you don't see them shooting the film and i think it works for me in a way that i don't think it would have worked if it had been set during the shooting of the film um you know i think it allows it to focus on a bit more but you know, for others, it could be a bit, it could maybe be a little bit too distancing and alienating. I could see that. It didn't for me, but it is, it is fairly obvious how the circumstances under which it was filmed for me. That's that's a really interesting point in terms of, I didn't even think about, but um, why I actually really liked the the set design and the, particularly the costuming with 
Penelope Cruz or hair was fantastic. I think, as you were mentioning, everyone's mentioned quite well, but I think I was listening to a, a artist, a YouTube, a YouTube talk of an artist I, I really admire and how uh, all artists, she's saying that all artists have to have some form of ego. And for me, this was a film about various different kinds of ego and um, and the artifice of that process, you know, from the funder, from the executive producer who has to make a decision on how he, you know, why this is to, you know, to to all the different main players. But I did like that the auteur filmmaker who was kind of the humorously like put in this, I mean, gorgeous, like, like the way her, like her costumes were Penelope, you know, Penelope Cruz and sort of shown as this kind of very, attractive figure or whatever but was also you know was a female and it was you know sort of having to deal with these two male egos you know and and that process as well I I really I liked I liked every aspect of it it's definitely more my sort of humor and I think this film in terms of how it's how everything was put together um was was really captivating and 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 all those all the things you've mentioned so the the you know the it, so super symmetrical, super, super isolating, super process, artificial, which a film, the film process often is and, and to get what you need out of it, um, all the way till the end where, you know, they're in that kind of fake film festival and, you know, having to sort of discuss what the film could have been, would have been, what it, you know, like how a film lives on in, in, in thoughts. I think it was really smart, smart, um, and really well done. I enjoyed the hyper realness of it. I don't think the the setting was was very distracting, and it didn't it didn't scream this is COVID restrictions no. to me. It just screamed this like hyper reality world in which people live in architectural spaces that resemble and exist in spaces that resemble more museums or an art gallery mm -hmm. than any kind of like the back of a theater rehearsal room. Uh, so getting to that level of fame and dealing with that kind of money just exists in a completely different universe, a hyper real universe where everything is to the nth degree. People's yeah egos are you're at the mercy of everyone's egos and whims and um, everything, every interaction sort of an experimentation and leverage and, and uh, dominance. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I, I loved it. The, I think it did, I think it did have good balance when it was creative. So I, the balance in the sense that uh, there were sketches that just existed purely to drive home a single satirical point about the industry. So, I mean, for example, the one scene where, um, where there's about a hundred microphones just <laughs> angled at the producer, at the um, at the at the rich pharmaceutical mogul who's um, funding, um, producing the and the film, his daughter is, has been chosen, but based on her merit and talent, of course, not the not because of nepotism, um, she's placed at the center of these microphones and then has to, um, has to pretty much get off with everyone in the room, um, with her father watching her, and it just escalates and is so ridiculous. It just serves only to. To, to bring home the, the the voyeurism of film and how, how female actors are just sort of used and how it's just it's, it's, it's fantastic and just for for pure comedy gold and also so that we can solidify uh lola the eccentric director's status as a total um a total don really <laughs> i think um the the, the fake film festival at the end. I also just want to point out, I haven't been in a few situations like that. I did so kind funny. of, I, I did, I did enjoy that scene and just this sort of the 
absolute banal questions that people come out with sometimes like i you know and i think it was it was one of these kind of like everyone sucks here scenarios where it's like (laughs) you know like people are asking the most banal stupid questions of these like fabulously creative people but then at the same time they're just like shooting them down with such like utter disdain these people who like come to see a film i i it was like really pretty well observed i think that that's that's true the whole the, the whole film i think it i think it does all that very well it was and so I, brutal. I, I was going to say, and I think if anything, Jim, what you're touching on with all the sort of dead sort of space in the area, I think if anything, that just heightened the relationships between the three sort of people. It made it more... Oh, sort totally, of, yeah. It made it more yeah. theatrical. It was like, I liked how it was looking at those like three intense egos and they're three intense egos that will always be there. And it's that, well, someone has to bend a knee. No one is. They're just superficially moving around it. But there's one person who's clearly in charge of this whole setting. Oh, I love the, yeah. Losing that. I love the satellite characters, I think, being there as much as I do the the core central three characters because they they say so much as well. So, for example, um, there's a scene involving a big, I don't know what you'd call it, a thresher. I'm gonna go with Thresher. Tell me <laughs> yeah. if there's another another way to be going about describing it. I would have said um, a Thresher, so similar things. There you go. Well, uh, so there's there's a Thresher involved, and basically um, things of great value and emotional significance, and uh, <laughs> there's symbols of the the eager the actor's ego get thrown into into the Thresher. And um, there's a brilliant, really enjoyable uh, couple of shots of just random stuff being thrown into the Thresher of Doom machine, which are just so enjoyable and just like the perfect mix of just really surreal and funny, but also kind of bordering on something you'd see in a in an art film <laughs> as well. Yeah, no, it was and, like and then, but then they of... make a mess, but then they make a ridiculous mess. All the stuff comes out the Thresher, and it, uh, the, the the comedic point has been made, the philosophical point has been made, and then. You just see the thresher just left on a stage and then there's just a little crap on the floor and then in shuffles a cleaner to pick it up and to, and to clean up after everything and then they linger on that shot and it's just um so you, yeah you see, there's a lot there's a lot of really great um scathing sort of like class political sort of points about class in there as well but also really that was su- yeah it was such a strange cutaway that you held on for what like three mm. three minutes mm. and it actually yeah. kind of was slightly soothing like yeah it was it was this, very soothing yeah. you know despite how chaotic it is and about how and how dramatic it is and how unbearable these people are it's just so it's so enjoyable I, I would watch it again tomorrow oh actually. me too I would happily watch it again and then also what about that beginning part so in the beginning there's the whole part where the director forms her sort of vision book. That's the only thing <laughs> I describe it as because it is not sort of like charts of where people so funny. It's not a storyboard. And just the weird thing she puts in there and you just see her in her process. Cigarettes. <laughs> this is it. This is you making art. Here we go. <laughs> oh, it's so good. They managed, I mean, it's kind of, uh, what was, what's the quote? So there's this really oft-referenced uh quote about creative differences between actors that is um, centers around Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman. Um, the latter being committed to really committed to method acting and then Olivier remarking scathingly in response to Hoffman being sleep deprived to bear um, to bear perform a character. Um, he said, uh, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? It's so much easier. And um, that is such like a hackneyed, uh, well-known like trope about the about the film industry about actors but uh, that that is kind of the central core of the film is that is yeah. that tension and that that kind of like yeah and yeah, creative yeah, because, differences because antonio banderas is being a lot more functional about it but, yeah you know oscar martinez characters is, is more about kind of like you know 
connecting with the character but and, it's so fresh you know, it's so fresh and, yeah. it's not it's not remotely for someone who gives even half of a shit about lovies or or the industry whatsoever it is just this perfect like fly on the wall outside looking in kind mm. of it, it's 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 wonderful i think um, oh, and there's a really, yeah, there's a really great scene in the acting workshop as well, which uh, really early on. So um, the the character who's the actor who is much more enamored with the finer, the finer arts as he sees them um, and is on the more pretentious end of the spectrum as an actor. Um, he uh, He's hosting an acting workshop and he asks, he poses the question to this room of, of students and says, okay, so none of you are actually going to make it. Only about one of you in this room is going to make it as an actor. Um, if anyone here believes, if every if anyone here believes that's not them, then, then you can just leave and nobody leaves. <laughs> and nobody leaves. He's left with a whole room of people who, who believe vehemently that they are going to be the successful one. And there's not even a hint of doubt. And then that's the only, that's all it is. And then the scene just, it's, it's just a, a little implant and then they just move on and it's just it's full of those like wonderful little moments just making fun of making fun of the creatives i love it great so it's an all win win-win for us uh official competition is still it's going to be playing on the 19th at uh view as part of the edinburgh international film festival i think after that it'll be coming out in theaters across the uk i think maybe in september um so you uh yeah you should definitely go see that one definitely definitely we might go we might see you there um uh, so check it out um so just wanting to ask everybody uh you know if you've seen some other films that you want to recommend or you want to um you want to quickly highlight uh or what you're thinking we'll be catching up with uh the rest of the team or maybe some more of us um again uh you know with some interviews and stuff on on a second program but um what are you looking for we still have a week to go so what what what's on your on your list of must go sees or you've already seen and you need to make sure other people go see as well I definitely want to go see Anonymous Club, which is described as the, an anti-rock doc. Um, it's about Courtney Burnett, the Australian singer-songwriter, uh, about her touring and uh, yep, her experiences of the creative process. And yeah, I uh, also like to go see The Territory, um, which is directed by um, a cinematographer turned documentarian. Um, and it follows uh, a group of Indigenous um, activists in Brazil as they as they try and resist, basically, um, it's, it's it's extremely cinematic, and I think it will do. I hope it will do justice to uh, to the cause in its beauty and impact. So I'm looking forward to those. Um, I'm extremely excited for Special Delivery, which has been described as sort of drive set from a Korean female perspective. So it's this idea of a woman behind the, um, the wheel. It is So Dan Park, who was one of the stars from Parasite. And yeah, it's just basically traveling around junkyard employees secretly working as a delivery clerk and dealing with unusual delivery requests. And that one's on on Friday afternoon and I think Thursday night, but I'm very excited for that one. Also off to see The Forgiven tomorrow, which stars Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain, um, which has a bit of um, sort of a political sort of um, distress sort of position, um, but that should be quite entertaining. And then also Axiom, which I'm going to see right after we finish here, which is all about a young museum attendant who named Julius, who everyone loves and thinks he's a lovely person. And he goes on a boat trip with some aristocrats and it turns out he's not what he seems to be. So it's this whole looking at, is he a villain? Is he not? And yeah, really excited for those. 
Um, so in my case, there's a few things um, because of the, the the ongoing demands of a six-month-old baby. I'm not sure how many of them I'll get to see, um, but ones I would probably have an eye on. Um, also, like Isabel, special delivery looks uh, pretty good to me, so I, I would quite like to catch that. Um, well, I'm going to highlight there were two films which I saw at Sundance back in January, and they're screening at the festival i think they will also be getting uk releases though but they're both definitely worth seeing um the first one i'm going to mention is resurrection which is a sort of thriller horror starring rebecca hall um rebecca hall is superb in the film um and she's basically playing without going too far into it because part of the pleasure of the film is to kind of like tease out it's um you know the the backstory which is kind of like driving all the behavior of the characters within it um but the the central point is that she's a an abuse survivor who is then trying to navigate this trauma kind of reading its head again um and it features a just creepy as all hell performance from tim roth um who is also absolutely superb in it it is not a it is not a film for the faint of heart um I could, without going into too many details, I could also say I saw this film while my wife was eight months pregnant, and that was a very, very, very poor choice. It was a very poor choice on my part. Um, but in terms of the actual effect of the film, it's really, it's really effective. It does what it wants to set out to do superbly, and it has a Rebecca Hall performance at the centre of it that is just so unbelievably intense. Um, you know, it really continues that kind of like home run of performances that she's she's had recent years on that front so that one i would definitely check out um if you can the other one i'm going to highlight is actually the closing gala film um but it's going to be coming out next month uh we, we hope to do it on the show but we didn't quite manage to kind of um get the access to it to to cover it but we might try and do it next month because it is going to come out in uk cinemas at the end of september and sadly although i won't say this out loud to the people who gave me access to the the, the screener for it to re-watch it at sky cinema which probably means it will just die a slow streaming death unfortunately um but basically it's a science fiction film which is centered upon um a synthetic sibling um for a young girl um and it's that sort of like gently dystopian light sci-fi with big ideas that is very much my bag um it's directed by kogan nada who did uh columbus which i think a lot of people will have will have seen um i really think it's superb um it's a very moving film but it's also a film with a lot of different things to say to to whisper let's say in various different uh on various different topics and it's got a colin farrell performance at the middle of it which i think is really pretty good and justin h min who plays the uh the android sibling yang of the title um a very good performance from from him as well so i really think it's an excellent film it's an excellent science fiction film but it's not a it's it's a science fiction film that i think a lot of people could could get into it's a very touching film in a lot of ways as well um but if you can't see it at the festival um then do check it out when it comes out i think it's an i think it's an excellent choice for the closing gal and i was very impressed with it when i saw it Great, yeah, and all of those sound great, and I'm looking forward to um, seeing as many of those films as possible. I'd also like to make a call out for the film I saw uh, yesterday evening, A Cat Called Dom, which is uh, is a documentary animation hybrid by Scottish animators um, Will Anderson and Ainsley Henderson. It's um, you know we're talking a lot about humor. It's funny, but it's really sad as well because it follows. Uh, 
the story of Will and his mother who had a, who who was dealing with cancer um, and how sort of he processed it through uh, through creativity and and whatnot, but also a film that kind of goes in lots of different ways. It's um, it's definitely experimental and it was it was it was worth listening to and also makes me really appreciate because I was really happy there was a Q&A. I really like Q&As, um, uh, even if they're as they're banal questions coming from the audience, as Jim suggests, um, because it does, it, sometimes those Q&As go quite funny or, or strange. And this one went a little off and I met the filmmakers afterwards and told them so, but maybe uh, too much, but um, but I love them. And, uh, and it, it's, it's really, it, it's a good film. It's worth checking out as well so and it's world premiere uh for for the, for those filmmakers so give give that a whirl and give give them all a whirl uh the q a's the this film festival is worth is worth everything it's it's um it's a lovely and there's a lovely energy in the room right now that's the one thing i'm really enjoying is is um you know like it's back like it really feels like a film festival is back and um i'm really ex i'm excited to to explore it more throughout the week uh so we will be back with you on a, a final recap on that um uh, so stay tuned for that but in the meantime enjoy uh enjoy the festival if you can mm -hmm.